Today's story is guest hosted by Salim Fadli, a friend of Escape Pod and of Resonance FM in London. Escape Pod 38 January 26, 2006 Today's story, Malkshimista by N.K. Jemison. Steve asked me to tell you about my love of the definitive English trilogy. Written shortly after the Second World War, this epic story spans three volumes and a shorter children's novel. It's a story of intrigue, betrayal and a long adventure very far from home. I'm sure most of you have guessed that I'm talking about the Gormenghast books by Mervyn Peake. This trilogy has recently been re-released as a single volume, and if you're lucky you might find an out-of-print copy of Peake's sinister children's book, Boy in Darkness. This trilogy describes the childhood of Titus Grown, the heir to the throne of Castle Gormenghast, a crumbling dystopia where tradition and pointless ceremony utterly dominate life. The books describe the rise and eventual fall of Steerpike, a kitchen boy who by cunning and deception gains the highest office in the land. Steerpike will stop at nothing, including murder, to get what he wants, and Titus is the only person in the castle with the wits to oppose him. These books are about Titus's struggle to overcome betrayal and escape his destiny. They're about growing up and becoming a man. These are eternal, epic themes, themes of great literature. And yet, strangely enough, you will find this book in the fantasy section, even though it features no dwarves, magic rings, or any of the usual Tolkien-esque trappings. Every time I see Gormenghast on a fantasy shelf, I'm going to pick it up and move it into the literature section. Now, Gormenghast clearly is a work of fantasy because it's purely a work of the imagination. The world of Gormenghast is so bizarre it could never have existed, but nevertheless, this book is also great literature, and I think it deserves to be treated as such. It works the other way around. I can take Moby Dick and place it with the fantasy novels. Moby Dick is great literature, but it's also a fantasy every bit as removed from our lives as an alien planet. Why shouldn't Moby Dick live on the same shelves as Dune? Malevolent whales are arguably further from our urban reality than robots and cyberspace. The division between great literature and great fantasy is artificial. It exists only for the convenience of booksellers, and it puts our favourite stories into a ghetto. We should recognise that all great stories are made from the same stuff, and once we do so, we can unite against the real enemy. We've allowed our section to be invaded by spin-off novels, These are adaptions from movies, TV shows and even video games. Those publishers are really aiming for the lowest common denominator and as a result it's not surprising that most booksellers don't take fantasy or SF seriously. And that's where Escape Pod can help. I expect these new authors that the pod has featured will soon have their own books and we can expect amazing stories that cross the genres and defy our expectations. But more importantly, these will be books we want to buy. If we can support these authors by buying their books, maybe booksellers will just want to stock more original works and fewer spin-offs. Publishers might turn off their PlayStations and actually start commissioning new original works. And before we know it, we'll have created a thriving market for new fiction. Is that possible or just fantasy? This somehow brings me to our latest battle in the struggle for literary liberation. Today's story, La Alchemista by Nora Jemison, received an honourable mention in the 18th edition of the year's Best Horror and Fantasy. Nora was also the winner of a travel grant from the Speculative Literature Foundation. Her story is without a doubt a fantasy. However, it's one which eschews the normal cod medievalisms. There's no semi-Norse poetry or sword-wielding hobgoblins. It's set in contemporary Italy, and while magic is involved, it's both familiar and subtle. It's read by an expert fantasist, Paul Tevis, from the Have Games Will Travel podcast, a show about the philosophy of games and role-playing. 
Paul's show really dissects the essence of fantasy, and you can find it on the iTunes Music Store or just follow the link from www.escapepod.org. And now, as Steve would say, it's story time. L'Alchemista by N.K. Jemison. The assistants had ruined the caponata soup. Screaming and flinging hot papardelle after them, Franca stopped on the inn sidewalk to pant for air as their backs faded into the snow-flecked night. Problematic, Signora," said a voice to her left. Now who will help you in the kitchen? Franca turned, lifting her ladle to confront a specter, or so the man seemed, hidden, as he was, within a voluminous winter coat and wide-brimmed hat. In the light from the sodium lamps, she could make out the etchings of a face within the hat's shadow, thin, graceful lines of nose and chin and lips. The latter most curved in a smile. The smile did not help her mood. "'More problematic than they're worth,' Franca said, putting her free hand on one ample hip. "'And so will you be if you're here a-begging. Or if you're a flasher, go find the widow Annabella down the street.' I hear she's not picky. The smile widened. Not begging, Signora, except perhaps for some warmth and a good meal. I heard both could be found here. Heard where? Franca narrowed her eyes, suspicious. None of the travel websites would list any inn where she worked. The market, the taxi, folk on the street. Your kitchen comes highly recommended among those who care more about skill than popularity. It was cheap flattery but enough that she gave him a second look. His old coat was of decent quality, its lines elegant, if plain. The hat was the sort of thing she recalled seeing on old men in mountain villages, the ones who sat about all day commenting on the world. Not a beggar, perhaps, but certainly no man of means. Still, he had taste and tact. That was enough to decide her. "'The Milano night is cold,' she said, gesturing toward the door with the ladle. I suppose I can keep my kitchen warm a while longer. You have my gratitude, Signora. The man moved past her and inside, pausing first to knock the snow off his boots at the door. The common room of the inn had closed down for the evening some time before, though the smell of cigarettes and prosciutto lingered in the air. Old deaf Giovanni hummed to himself as he swept behind the bar, long used to Franca's tantrums he had already cleaned up the papadele from the walls and floor. The stranger paused to look about, and for a moment Franca sighed, ashamed as always by the badly sealed stone walls, the uneven wooden floor, and the yellowed newspaper clippings and photographs decorating the walls. It was a cozy little inn, the locals said, so rustic, so quaint. So far have I fallen, she thought. The special tonight is hair. She said it gruffly, picking up a nearby rag to give the table a cursory wipe. Nothing left of tonight's soup, though. And tomorrow's caponata is scorched, so you'll have to do without an appetizer. I suppose there might still be some papadele. The man sat down, not removing his hat and coat. Hair? He lifted his head slightly, his face was still in shadow, and sniffed the air. Roasted in an herb crust? And a dolce e forte sauce with Sicilian cabernet. You'll have used tomatoes as a thickener, then. Olive used hare's blood, as God intended before the damned Americas were discovered. Do you want it or not? Please. With the papardele, such as you have left. Franca snorted and went into the kitchen. For a moment, she contemplated simply reheating leftovers from the freezer. 
The sauce's tart sweetness would only have deteriorated a little, and her guest would probably never know the difference. Bah. She was thinking like one of the stupid assistants, for whom the subtle arts of the kitchen were merely a job, a living, a way to impress their friends. What did her audience matter, dignitary or destitute? She cooked for herself, and she'd never cooked any less than her best. So she cut apart the hair and browned the quarters with garlic and onion, searing the meat to seal the juices before removing it to the oven to roast. Then, after deglazing the browning pan with red wine, she added vegetables, herbs, the organ meats, and blood. This she simmered uncovered to reduce, meanwhile basting the oven quarters with honey and horseradish. The papadele she boiled in salted water, al dente, and tossed with the sauce. As a finishing touch, she set the roasted hair portions to stand at the center and grated parmigiano around the dish's edge. And while she worked, the small nuisances of the day faded, and her mind focused wholly on the marvel of creation. There was such balance in food. Sweetness and sharpness, blood and oil, the delicate influence of ingredients and the controlling power of flame. If only men and women could be so simple, so malleable. Give me a well-stocked kitchen and I could rule the world, she whispered to herself, and wished for all her heart it was true. The meal was done. She carried the platter out to the common room and set it down in front of the man. You'll want wine? In a moment. The man lifted a hand to waft the dish's steam toward himself. Franca could barely hear his soft inhalation. Ah. And now... He took up the spoon and tasted the sauce, then plucked loose a morsel of hair. He chewed slowly and thoughtfully, then swirled a few fat ribbons of the papadele in the sauce before slurping them up. He took his time tasting this as well. Franca folded her arms. She didn't usually watch when people ate her dishes. It felt somehow incestuous. But something about this man had piqued her interest. Well? The man looked up at her and for the first time she got a good look at his face. Older than she'd suspected, gaunt and solemn, though his eyes were merry. Might have been handsome twenty years before. Not Italian, though his Milan accent had been flawless. She could not guess his ancestry other than that. French, perhaps, or UK. Marvelous. The perfect balance of salt and sweetness, the tang of the capers, the tender texture all blended with such subtlety. Signora, you are amazing. I know. Inordinately pleased, Franca went to the bar and returned with a wine bottle, a corkscrew, and a glass, all of which she thumped down in front of him. Old Giovanni was gone, probably to bed. Isadora, the inn's owner, might notice the missing wine when she next did inventory, but Franca would blame it on the assistant she'd just fired. Call me when you're done. She'd just finished cleaning up the kitchen, perhaps she would miss the assistance a little, when she heard his call from the common room. Miscusa, signora, I've just finished the best meal of my life. She stepped outside to see with satisfaction that he had cleaned his plate. I suppose I could make something for dessert. Perhaps next time, signora. I cannot linger tonight, though I shall most certainly return. The man dabbed his lips with a napkin, belched heartily, and pushed back his chair. In the meantime, I must repay you for your talent and effort, though for that I have something more interesting than money to offer. A challenge. 
She did not particularly care whether he paid. It wasn't her in. But at his words, she lifted an eyebrow. What sort of challenge? A very special one. He slipped a hand into his coat like an old-fashioned pistolero, but before Franca could worry, he pulled out a bulging sack made of what looked like deer hide. He set this on the table. Carefully, Franca noted. You are willing to follow a recipe? So many chefs of your caliber think themselves above the direction of others. She lifted her chin. I was head chef for Parliament once, before that bastard Berlusconi, anyhow. While I was there, I had to make Florentine dishes like a Florentine, and Venetian dishes like a Venetian, and the Madonna helped me if I did them wrong. If the recipe is sound, I can follow it. This one is sound. Just difficult. I present it to you, along with a few special ingredients. He gestured toward the sack with a flourish. I have been looking for a true artist of the kitchen for some time, Signora. I beg you not to disappoint me. She stared after him as he straightened, touched his fingertips to the brim of his hat, and walked out with a smile. Bemused, she picked up the sack and emptied it onto the table. An astonishing number of things fell out. An assortment of what looked like balls of dirt, a wad of moss, twenty or thirty fresh herb bunches tied with string, and three great gnarled things like the mating of an onion in a tree bowl. Last, there fluttered out a small roll of parchment paper, held shut with an old-fashioned wax seal. "'Not a beggar indeed. A madman,' she murmured. But she picked up the scroll and opened it nevertheless. "'Signora, the ingredients of this recipe must be blended precisely. Any deviation could be dangerous. Please do not waste the frava root. It is very difficult to come by.' This was followed by a beautifully illegible signature and a list of the ingredients provided. The gnarled things must be the frava root, she decided. Whatever that was. The herbs were a mixture of familiar and unfamiliar. Tarragon was followed by three sprigs tacaprique and powdered honavia. Then she gasped, for the recipe listed something that was truly impossible. She set the parchment down and snatched up one of the dirt balls. Tartufo... Bianco. A white truffle. Freshly dug. The clay covering hadn't even dried. A dozen of them lay scattered on the table. No, two dozen. Last she'd heard, white truffles sold for 1,500 euros a kilo in the chef's markets uptown. Her beggar had been carrying a fortune in fungi about in his coat. She took a shaking breath and picked up the parchment again. At the bottom of the page was the recipe itself. She made herself read it, and read it again. Then, disbelieving, she read it through a third time. Roast the truffles. That was bad enough. Truffles were best uncooked. But a little farther on, she saw evaporate the anise effusion under a cheesecloth, and later, on bisection of the frava, a blowtorch will be required. It was a bitch of a thing. A monster of a thing. And cruel. It would use up more than half the truffles he'd given her, if not all. And yet, she felt the familiar clench in her belly, the thrill along her spine. A challenge, the man had called it. Oh, and it was. For even as her practical mind insisted she ignore the mad recipe and take the truffles out to sell, her heart was pounding in excitement. She got to her feet, gathered up the ingredients, and carried them into the kitchen. 
She put them into their proper places, herbs in the herb rack, strange roots with the potatoes. The truffles she put into a risotto basket and tucked away under the sink. She took in the dishes the man had emptied, wiped down the table, and cleaned up the kitchen. Then she shut off the lights and headed home. I'll sleep on it, she told herself. But that was a lie. She'd already made up her mind. It took five days. Franca informed Isadora she would be taking a vacation that week. Isadora was upset at the late notice, but had no choice. She had asked Franca to work through August when most of the country enjoyed its vacation. Franca's price had been compensatory time whenever she wanted. But when Franca informed Isadora that she would be using the kitchen during her vacation, the old innkeeper had grown curious. Who works on vacation? she asked. And Franca had replied she would not be working, but creating. There were problems. The unidentifiable ingredients, she researched on the internet, browsed through books, even did chemical tests to make sure she knew what was what, but in all her searching never once found any reference to frava root. The root's smell was bitter when she finally rested one open, and there was a faint underscent of something fouler, like hot asphalt. She made herself taste it, and her tongue went numb for two days, a severe handicap for any chef, but doubly frustrating under the circumstances. Worse, the recipe was unclear. A pinch here and a spoonful there, interspersed with select a mid-sized example of this or that. She'd never worried about such things before. Art was rarely exact. But the strange fellow's note had been emphatic about precision, so Franca had no choice but to employ a blend of intuition and quasi-science to determine the correct balance. She calculated that the truffle's oils would need to be emulsified by an equal proportion of ground herbs. She added a third thread of saffron because the color's mixture just didn't look right. She also thanked God she'd fired the assistants. Having them around would have cocked up everything. But, despite the stress and the labor, she persevered and triumphed. Or so she thought. The resulting concoction, shaped into bite-sized loaves, each precisely 30 grams in weight, looked unappetizing, and smelled worse. Surely the things were not supposed to develop that greenish, oily sheen after she chilled them. She stored them in the small freezer, for fear that the deep freeze's thermostat might spark and set the cakes on fire. On the night she finished, the stranger returned. Franca hovered nervously this time, while her guests sat down to table. She had opted for a presentation of elegant simplicity on plain china, but this was a feeble diversion. The frava cakes had the color and texture of that American monstrosity called Spam. They smelled like petrol, and the one she'd dared to taste had been indescribable. Somewhere between fish liver and turpentine, with a subtle underflavor of rotten egg. She waited for his disgust while mourning the waste of so many beautiful truffles. Ah, breathed the man, wafting the scent toward himself. Just now ripe, I see. And the taste. He picked up one of the cakes and popped it into his mouth. She winced as he grimaced, but then he swallowed and smiled. Perfect. Perfect? She just stared at him. If I hadn't tasted one myself, I'd say you just ate poison, signore. Never in my life have I made anything so foul. He smiled and lifted the glass of Riesling she'd poured in hope of countering the cape's bitterness with sweet. But they aren't meant to taste good, Signora, he said. 
He paused to take a long sip of the wine. She nearly bounced on her toes while he held it in his mouth a moment before swallowing. The important thing is that the ingredients were mixed in the proper proportions. Doing it wrong indeed creates a poison so noxious the very fumes can kill. But doing it right... He stretched out a hand, examining the back of it. She followed the gesture in confusion. Yes? Yes? Doing it right? He looked up at her. The hat still shadowed his eyes, but... She blinked, frowned, peered closer, then took a step back. He was handsome now. Not quite as handsome as she'd speculated, but certainly better looking. As if he'd suddenly become a good ten years younger. He smiled and popped another of the cakes into his mouth. This time it happened while Franca watched. The deepest etched lines in his face lightened, and the gauntness filled out. In a few seconds she was looking at a hale and healthy man of middle years. "'Go and look at yourself, Signora,' he said, his eyes twinkling. "'You tried one, didn't you?' Oh, "'Madonna!' Franca whispered and hurried through the kitchen to the employee's bathroom. Even in Isadora's cheap lighting the difference was clear. The lines in her face had faded, and the second chin she'd been working on since her mid-forties was now smooth, taut skin. She examined herself everywhere, and found that she'd lost ten pounds, and her breasts were still in the vicinity of her chest. When the shock finally began to fade, she stumbled back to the common room. Her guest stood beside the table, inserting the last of the cakes into a wooden box incised with strange designs. He closed the lid and smiled at her again. How... It was all she could manage. Through your five days of labor, of course, he replied and your pure skill in the kitchen. The last time I tried this recipe, it nearly killed me. Thanks to you, my life is now renewed. She stared at him, mind and tongue mute. Then he gave another of those little flourishes, and she noticed that another deerhide sack lay on the table. No. She shook her head, unable to express her horror. She needed a month of sleep. She could not bear more strange ingredients, she was afraid of another recipe that could cook the impossible. She was afraid of him who brought such things. The choice is yours, Signora. The ingredients will keep until you're ready. No recipe this time. I want to see what you can do on your own. When you're finished, if you finish, we'll speak again. He tipped his hat once more and strode out on his vigorous younger legs. She took another week off. Isadora was incensed, but finally capitulated as Franca had known she would. If Franca hadn't once spat on the most powerful man in Italy, who'd had the nerve to call her Zabaglioni boring, Isadora would have been stuck with a second-rate chef from a third-rate school. Franca needed the job, but Isadora needed to keep Franca happy. At least the vacation's doing you some good, Isadora grumbled. You don't look quite so much the hag today. The deerhide bag sat on a counter in the kitchen. Franca did not touch it for several days. She cleaned up the mess left behind by the frava cakes and went home to sleep for the whole weekend. On Lunedi, she rose, went to the hairdresser, who exclaimed over the perfection of her coloring job, the gray was all but gone, visited her favorite stalls at the farmer's piazza and the fish pier, and meandered home. The whole time her mind was racing, her heart a thud. Dear Hyde Bag, waiting nightmare the possibilities. Returning to her bungalow, she set down her purchases and went to the mirror. Her own face stared back at her, haunted 
and younger. Once, she had been at the top of her field, a certified master, a respected woman in a man's profession, an artist with a promising career. One error of judgment had sentenced her to an endless purgatory of downscale, dead-end restaurants. She would not have minded that so much if the appreciation had not vanished along with the acclaim, but there it was. She was a better chef now than she'd been at the height of her career, and no one cared. Except one man. I want to see what you can do on your own, the stranger had said. A slow, ferocious smile stretched across her lips. Had she actually been looking at herself in the mirror, she might have marveled at the beauty the smile produced, but her mind had already turned to the deer-hide bag. "'Just you wait,' she whispered to herself and to her peculiar dining guest. "'Just you see what I can do.' She went to the inn and into the kitchen, and there she opened the bag. Three more sprigs of tacaprique, an assortment of more mushrooms, including several which were red with vibrant blue stripes, five vials of powdered herbs which were fortunately labeled, though she'd never before heard the names, the carcasses, somehow fresh, though the bag had lain about for days, of four mid-sized birds with brilliant red-gold feathers, a large wart-covered melon of some sort, a length of vine laden with cherry-red fruits, an ancient dusty bottle sealed liberally with wax. Franca snorted to herself. No worse than the master chef's exam. So she set to work, sorting the mushrooms and testing the herbs. She plucked and gutted one of the birds, puzzling for a moment over a strange hard object in its gullet which was hot to the touch. Though the vine fruit smelled heavenly, she quickly discovered that their fragrance could send her into a daydreaming fugue for an hour or more. Potential, she declared, then plugged her nose and sliced them up anyhow. And, as always, while she worked, the small nuisances of life faded, and she lost herself in the marvel of creation. Franca put the finishing touches on her dishes and carried them out to the table. Not at all to her surprise, the man was waiting for her, smiling from beneath his wide-brimmed hat. "'Such rich aromas,' he said, watching as she set down the tray. She had draped a covering cloth over it. Steam curled from beneath the cloth's edge. "'But the items I gave you weren't meant—' "'Never mind what was meant. They are what they are,' Franca said primly. "'A true chef never interferes with the power of food. She simply reveals it.' And with a flourish, she pulled the covering cloth away. His eyes widened. She let him absorb what he saw while she poured him a very dry Sauvignon Blanc. When he picked up his fork, she smiled at his hesitation. "'You made a dessert out of the firebirds.' "'Is that what they're called?' "'Yes, their livers had a sweetness that I liked once I blanched out the toxins. Ground fine with beet juice and muscat wine, then chilled. The cups are pumpkin coated with honeyed isinglass. The hat tilted up as he peered at her, then back down. "'And this?' He pointed toward a plate holding puffy circles of squid ink pasta, drizzled with golden sauce and a startlingly white powder. Panicles stuffed with basil-flavored ricotta, tacaprique, and electric mushroom strips soaked in brunello wine, dusted with potato flour to soften the tartness. The sauce is clarified butter warmed with pickle melon extract. The hat tilted up again. Electric mushroom. Pickle melon. 
Well, I had to call them something. Indeed. He pointed wordlessly, then, at the center course, a silver platter bearing half of the pickle melon's rind as a bowl for a whole roasted fowl. The smoking globule in its beak made for a particularly dramatic presentation. Whole hen firebird. The stuffing is a seven-mushroom blend with mincemeat, pork sausage, rosewater herb, and sage. Are you going to eat any of this? There's so much. Such variety. Where do you recommend I begin? She pointed at a platter of bruschetta on slabs of crusty bread. Tomino cheese, fresh sardines, olive oil pressed with the dream fruit seed, and pine nuts marinated in absinthe. I find the absinthe eases the narcotic effect of the dream fruit. The dreams last hours, but they are far less, shall we say, overwhelming. Instead, they stimulate the other senses so that one more properly enjoys the rest of the meal. Ah, thus the appetizer. Then there I shall begin. And he did. Franco watched, feeling quite smug as he discovered each dish's delights. He gasped when the stuffed panicles gave him a jolt, but then he chuckled and amused himself throwing bolts of lightning across the room at the doorknobs. Then he sampled the partridge-breast crepe rolls, liberally sprinkled with the strange elixir that had come from the dusty bottle. She had found that this marvelously spicy and thick substance caused the occasional imp to appear, so to counter the effect, she had gone to the nearby church and gotten some holy water to thin the crepe batter. His eyes widened in pleasure as the elixir and holy water sizzled together in his mouth. She smirked. As she had planned, the firebird's glaze, which contained a few drops of leftover frava oil, sparked on the flint gizzard in its mouth and caught fire the moment he tried to carve a slice. The illusory flames billowed and curled around the dish like the bird's lost feathers, and the slice he'd cut floated gracefully to his plate. And so it went. By the time he'd finished the dessert, he was laughing aloud in pure delight, and the common room was a wreck. That had been mostly the result of the dream vine gnocchi, which he ate too soon after the firebird roast gave him temporary wings. Vandals, she would tell Isadora, probably the disgruntled former assistants. Well, he said at last, dabbing his lips with a napkin, now I truly have had the best meal of my life, signora. Grazie, grazie. You've surpassed my every hope. Oh? Franca raised both eyebrows. Does this mean you'll leave me another bag of strange things? I could, signora, but I would prefer instead to show you where to find your own. She tensed in interest. My own? Certainly. And then, if I may be so bold... I have an offer for you. A job offer, I should say. She quirked a wiry eyebrow. You really aren't much of a beggar, are you, signore? You're not poor enough by far. He laughed. If it's any consolation, signora, I am a poor man now by the standards of my past. In my youth, my true youth, one could work wonders with eye of newt and a cauldron. But alas, the world has changed. I should hope so. Why ever would you waste your time with something so foul as Newt's eyes? Because all things contain power, Signora, and some have more power than most. Science has only recently discovered that truth, but certain professions in the world, yours, mine, have known it for centuries. Who's to say that plutonium is more powerful than, say, rice? One takes away a million lives, 
The other saves a hundred times as many. He smiled, pausing to take a long, appreciative sip of wine. So now you're a nuclear technician? Another laugh. What I am is your apprentice, Signora, if you'll have me. My art is too primitive for these times. The old techniques no longer have the same effect, and when they do, the effect is less potent. More importantly, I no longer want to use the old techniques. He made a face. I find them crude. But you, Signora, understand subtlety and balance, the proper places of form and function, the interaction of the world with the senses. He put a hand over his waist and offered a little bow from his seat. I would learn that from you, if you will teach me. She stared at him, but her mind came alive with the possibilities. No more customers and taste buds of stone, no more assistance with fumbling fingers and proletarian minds. Her guest had already shown a thousand times more refinement. It would be a joy to teach him. And yet... She put her hands on her hips. I'm no easy taskmistress. I expect work. I expect art. He pushed back from the table and got to his feet, sweeping his hat from his head in a true bow. As much as my poor soul can produce, Signora. My kitchen will have to be top-notch. Two floors of my citadel shall be yours to remodel and stock as you please. A citadel? This I'd promise. I'll ask no apprentice fee of you, but I expect room and board and a stipend. Two more floors for an apartment, outfitted to your liking. As for the stipend, I have little in the way of ready funds, but you will lack for nothing materially. An expense account? A substantial supply of lead, actually, bought for a pittance. It converts very well to gold through the application of a certain aromatic oil. She considered this for a moment. All right, and I'll want a sample of that oil. Aromatics always have possibilities. But of course, Signora. She tapped her foot, wondering how far she dared. And vacation in August, like everyone else. He smiled. Whenever you wish. She folded her arms, regarding his young old face in silence now, debating with herself. He could be lying about all of it. He could be a crazy murderer. He could be a politician. Well, probably not a politician. I suppose I can at least see this citadel of yours, she said at last. If the kitchen space is as large as you say, I'll need to begin inventory on what stock you already have. Amateurs never have the right pots and pans. He grinned as if she'd given him a kiss. As you like, Signora. Shall we? He tossed the cloth over the empty dishes, stepped around the shattered chairs, and offered her his arm. She took it, blushing a little as he led her toward the door. You must promise me one thing, Signore. And that is? The truffles, Signore. Never ask me to cook them again. He raised both eyebrows. But the frava cakes are foul and should never be forced upon another human being. I can bake up a hundred ways to keep us young, never fear. It is only a matter of art. He stared at her for a long moment, and then his young face stretched in a slow smile. So it must be, Signora. So it must be. They walked together, arm in arm, into the snowy Milano night. And that was our story. Nora Jemison, the author of today's story, says she listens to Escape Pod as she bikes into work. 
And a few weeks back, Steve mentioned Eric from Surrey in England, who listens to Escape Pod on his motorbike. It's time for me to confess that I also am an Escape Pod biker. I know it's not safe to mix fantasy and motorbikes with oncoming heavy goods vehicles, but nevertheless, many of us still do. I'm not encouraging it or anything, but please do let us know if, like Nora, you listen to Escape Pod in a dangerous or potentially life-threatening situation. For example, do you listen while you deploy fireworks, operate agricultural machinery, or perhaps pilot an experimental aircraft? I think it's a measure of how much we value our escapism. Literally, how much personal danger are we willing to expose ourselves to for half an hour of fantasy? The most extravagant story will win nothing but my admiration, but please add your comments to www.escapepod.org. Speaking of featured donors, today's featured donor is myself. Yes, I have donated to Escape Pod on a number of occasions, and my British pounds go to pay authors and to keep the Escape Pod web servers from imploding. I would urge you all to do the same. And I know it's indulgent to feature myself, but that's because I'd like to tell you about another artistic institution that deserves your attention, and perhaps maybe a podcast subscription. I'm talking about London's ultra-alternative radio station, Resonance FM. Resonance gives a showcase to our city's most unusual artists. People like Dan Wilson, whose hobby is tape-dropping, the art of purposefully discarding recordings full of bizarre and challenging audio in order to create a disturbance. Some people might think this is a pointless and losery thing to do, but just be thankful Resonance is here to channel his artistic instincts. Dan is one of the many bizarre and original Resonance program makers, so if you're curious, just follow the link to Resonance FM from www.escapepod.org or search the podcast directories for Resonance. I'm going to play a promo for Dan's show at the end of today's podcast, so please stay listening. I'd like to remind you that our theme tune is by Daikaiju, whose riffs will perhaps outlast the heat death at the end of the universe, and also that this recording is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. This means that, like Dan, you are free to record copies of Escape Pod onto cassettes or CDs and leave them in your neighbourhood in order to perplex and challenge your fellow Earthling. So until next week when Steve returns, I've been Sal for Escape Pod. Thanks for listening. Directories or by going to the Resonance FM website. It's a show about tape dropping and stuff. Tape droppings where you leave a cassette of homebrewed music for the unsuspecting public to find. <laughs> Make them think, oh, who did this? I've got some new binoculars. Wicked. So tune your heads in to the Hellebore Show podcasts. Bye. The menopause affects ladies only.